This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Today we have another installment in our series on military medicine and military neurosurgery. Today we are honored to be joined by Mason Blacker. Mason is a Navy SEAL who has gone on to pursue a career in medicine. Uh, He's currently at New York University where he's in one of the early groups finishing a three-year program and will be applying for neurosurgery soon. Mason, we have so much to talk with you about with your former career and your future aspirations. Welcome to the show. Please take a moment and introduce yourself to our audience. Yeah, no, thank you. Thanks so much for having me on. uh, I'm really humbled to be a part of this. so yeah, I, I, uh, I grew up in Illinois, it's a real small town, and then I was the first one in my family to go to college. And as I was approaching the end of college, uh, you know, I, I knew I wanted to serve in the military. Both of my uh, grandparents served in the Navy during World War II, and I uh, kind of stumbled upon the SEAL teams. And so I texted my then girlfriend at the time and was like, hey, you're going to have to teach me how to swim. She's like, why? I said, well, I want to be a, a Navy SEAL. And she's like, what the hell is that? And, uh, you know, I could confidently say that after uh, being married to this same person for 12 years, that she's just as unimpressed with me now as she was back then. And um, but uh, yeah, I joined the Navy right after I finished college and uh, made it through BUDS and SQT, then went on to the Special Operations Combat Medic course with the Army boys out there in Fort Bragg. And then I spent some time at uh, SEAL Team 5 and then ended up uh, on the East Coast SEAL Team out there and uh, did deployments to Iraq a couple times, Afghanistan, Yemen, uh, and Libya. And once I kind of finished that up, I ended up uh, in medical school, like you said, and uh, now here I am. Uh, well, it sounds like I guess you I shouldn't leave the out right that. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I guess I shouldn't leave out that uh, you know I've got two two wonderful kids and an amazing wife. So, oh, that's phenomenal. It, it I was I was going to say it sounds like you picked the right partner and someone who will keep you honest and keep you humble and and keep you fighting as you continue down this career path, which, as we all know, can get pretty difficult. But you, you mentioned that during your time in the military and as a SEAL, you you got some medical training. Um, so it was medicine and caring for patients always part of your plans for your life and your interests, even when you were actively working with the SEALs? Yeah, you know, um, it was kind of by happenstance that I ended up at the uh, combat medic course, but I really fell in love with it there. And, um, you know, fortunately, fortunately or unfortunately, I had a lot of uh, experience with um, combat medicine on deployments. And actually, after I finished up with a couple of deployments at SEAL Team 5, I told my wife, like, hey, you know, I'm going to screen for this East Coast-based SEAL team. If I don't get picked up, I'll go to medical school. And uh, it just happened for whatever reason, I got picked up and, and made it through their selection. So it got d- delayed a little bit, but, you know, it came came full circle. Mason, I got to tell you, I, I'm so impressed with uh, what I've heard about you already. I'm hoping to meet you in person and buy you some drinks at the bar when I actually get to meet you. But uh, I was, uh, we're recording this on Memorial Day, and this will be released, I think, uh, a little bit later than that. But I was out with a bunch of friends. Shout out to Frank Tedesco. Uh, he got a big yacht. We went out to the Miami Air and Sea Show, and it's absolutely impressive. Uh, if any of our listeners have never been to one of these type events where, you know, you get to see what it's like to have a bunch of Apache helicopters fly overhead or F-35 Raptor uh, zip around very close in proximity, it is it is truly impressive what uh, what 
the U.S. military can demonstrate in terms of technology, but also what the SEAL teams do on the ground, man to man. Can you help acquaint our listeners with a little bit of sort of the lore? If, if anybody's been living, uh, you know, absent any kind of contact with the media, what it, what it's like to be a SEAL, what it's like to go through that training, what the selection process is like, give people a little feel for this. Oh, yeah. Um, well, I guess I, I should say, you know, first off, you got to be real careful when, uh, uh, you know, inviting a SEAL for drinks that you're going to pay for. Um and then, you know, there's a, I was always told a joke, you know, how many seals does it take to screw in a light bulb? And the answer is two, one to screw in the light bulb and one to tell you how hard Buds was. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's true. I mean, I guess, you know, when I joined the SEAL teams, there really there wasn't much known about and we weren't really in the media at the time. But um, yeah, I, don't, I mean, it's it training's really difficult, but it, it forges you into a person that you know, you didn't know that you could be and that, you know, it takes you to a level that you didn't realize that you could attain. And, um, you know, you really push your body beyond what you thought the human body was capable of. And I think even more importantly, you kind of learn more about your mental uh, performance and really teaches you to control that part of your, your, um, your physiology. And, on deployments, I mean, I can tell you, uh, there's been a lot of argument about how hard SEAL training is and, you know, whether or not it should be easier or they should change certain things. And I can honestly say that I was pushed to levels beyond, uh, you know, what I thought I was capable of on deployment, even more so than, than in training. So, um, yeah, if, you, if there's anything specific, I guess, you know, that's maybe a little glimpse. Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe tell people about what the teams are like. How big is a team? How many there are? And and some are stationed on the East Coast, some on the West Coast, right? There's there are a lot of things out there about the seals that's quite fascinating to me. How they function. Uh, we don't have time to cover it all, but give them a little flavor on what that's like. What what's the difference between SEAL Team Six and SEAL Team Five, for example? Yeah, so I, I guess uh, you know officially SEAL Team Six doesn't exist, um, but for what you know people know about it, uh, you know that's a, a East Coast based SEAL team that you kind of screen for, and then they're a national level mission unit. So you you deploy for purpose, and um, you know when you hear somebody went out and did a hostage rescue, that's uh, that's that team. But um, you know generally SEAL teams operate in platoons of like you know sixteen guys, and you train together and you fight together, and you really it's a brotherhood. It really is. Um, you know I remember when I got to my first SEAL team. Uh, you know they just knew each other so well, and I'm like, how do these guys know each other so well? But by the end of a cycle, I mean on night vision, on nods, I can tell you exactly who each person in my team was from a hundred meters away, just by how they walked. And, you know, you really rely on, on those guys, you know, as brothers, as you're on deployment, because not only are you away from your family, but, you know, things get pretty hard and you run through a lot of situations where you really need someone who can understand what you're going through. And that's, you know, your teammates. So it's, uh, it's, it's definitely a brotherhood and it's, um, you know, it's a pretty, pretty amazing, uh, amazing teams. And it's filled with amazing people that I feel really honored to have uh, worked with. Now, Mason, you, you touched briefly before about what the training was like and the strain and the difficulty and the testing, both physically and mentally that you were put through as part of BUDS and your SEAL training. And so with the understanding and the caveat that you're about to graduate medical school, you're going to interview and apply for residency. And I don't want to put you on the spot and ask you any question that, you know, you might incriminate yourself or, or that might not be advantageous for you to answer uh, going into an interview cycle next year. But 
maybe you can, to the extent that you're comfortable, talk about what it's like having gone through that kind of grueling training and selection process. I mean, we know there was a death in SEAL training at Bud's last, early last year, and now that's coming up again, and there may be a lawsuit. And so as someone who has made it through that process that is so in the national spotlight now, what's it like being in medical school? Because people complain about medical school being hard. And I, in my experience, I, you know, it's, I'm a few years out, but when I was in medical school, it could be very hard or it could be, maybe I'll say much less hard, depending on what you wanted to do with yourself and what you were trying to get at. <laughs> Right. Um, and like what, what you were demanding of yourself in school and what you were demanding of whatever you want to call the training or, or education you were getting at the time. So, again, to, to try and make it as palatable as possible for you to answer on, on the record, so to speak, what's it like being someone who's gone through the selection and training that you did and then actually, you know, in the field that you were in in those environments and now you're back in a classroom and what's that been like? And then maybe if you even want to speculate, what do you think the interview process and residency will be like? Yeah. Uh, now that's a really good question. Um, and at the risk of incriminating my, I mean, I am who I am, I guess. I, I think medical school is really easy compared to uh, the things I've done in the past. And I think that uh, it's all perspective based though, right? Like we've got a, a lot of really smart and incredible people, uh, you know, at, at NYU, but that a lot of them have went straight from college to here. And, um, you know, they just, it's hard for them because that's what they're used to. But, um, you know, I, I found it really easy. It's been a, a huge break. It's been uh, uh, enjoyable to be able to spend some time with my family. Um, I took biochemistry in Afghanistan. And so um, trying to like handle that then it, it's, uh, you know, it's been nice to be able to just kind of come home and no one's trying to shoot me or anything and I can learn what I need to learn and go about my day. Um, to the, to the second part of that question. Um, you know, I, so I, I'm in a three-year neurosurgery program at NYU, which has uh, been incredible. And from day one, they hooked me up with um, Dr. Howard Rena, who's been, I mean, just he's he's the real deal. He's such an incredible human. And he really took me under his wing from day one. So I kind of got a peek, peek under the curtain, uh, so to speak. And, um, you know, I, I, I like to call him my wicked uncle. And, uh, you know, I, dare I say, you know, he's been a mentor, but also a friend. And so I've got to see kind of behind the curtains of how they run their residency. And, you know, it's definitely difficult. It's definitely going to be a lot more difficult than I think uh, a lot of other residencies may be. But I, I think that, you know, the perspective that I have will help uh, foster my transition through that, hopefully. Yeah, Dr. Arena is a fantastic guy. Shout out to Howard Arena. He's he's really just a fantastic, not only neurosurgeon, but teacher and educator and lecturer. I, I'm a big fan of his. Uh, you know, I, I want to bring us back to, to what you had kind of touched on, Mason, which is this concept of... of um, difficulty and function under pressure. And, and I'm thinking back, like when I was college, in college at Stanford, I remember I went at one point, I think 67 hours without sleeping or something like that. It was pretty ridiculous. And, and for those of you who've never tried um, trying to stay up several consecutive nights without sleeping at all, um, it's really quite grueling. At that time, I think I was taking, uh, was it nine classes and I was, uh, you know, I had final exams and I just, and I didn't do any drugs. I didn't take any like supplements. I don't drink coffee. Uh, it was not like that, but, but staying up like that, 
does a lot of unusual things to your mind. I'm going to draw our listeners' attention back to, I think it was episode 25. JP, you mentioned it on the last recording, which is Dr. Giannata talking about the resistance to fatigue as being a, a critical element of, of, of what our training is, right? And I, I think about it all the time, that if someone calls me up any time in the middle of the night, uh, no matter how tired I am, I want to think that I can make the right choice. I can go in and do surgery. I've never missed a surgery because I was sick or tired or whatever. And, I, and you know, the, when I come into surgery, and sorry to go on and on, but I, I want to draw some context. Every morning I come into surgery uh, and I the, meet the patients in the pre-op area. And the patient goes, well, uh, Dr. Wayne, did you get a good night's rest, right? <laughs> and you know what I say to them? And I don't want to sound offensive to any military people out there. I said, listen, um, if you have to really ask that question, I know you're just asking out of courtesy, then you pick the wrong doctor because they don't ask the Navy SEALs, hey, do you like feel like, you know, um, going after Osama bin Laden today, right? Like it's not an option. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, 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 no. I'm not feeling good. Like it's not, I'm tapping. It's not an option, right? So right. tell our listeners what it's like to be under duress like that because that is part of neurosurgery training. Yeah, um, no, I think you make a, a great point, and I think there's a there's definitely a, a big parallels here. And uh, for you know, in the SEAL teams, they train you um, so deeply in that, like you're so deeply ingrained in you know sleep deprivation, but also just a full on awareness of your capabilities, your mindset, and your physiology through all that. That uh, you know, you really have a good understanding of who you are and what you're capable of doing. And um, you know, we always there's a saying that you don't rise to the level, you know, the rise to the occasion, you, you default to your level of training. And I think that um, this is probably also going to cause me some strife, but I think there's a reason that neurosurgery residency is as difficult as it is. And, um, you know, you really have to train to those levels and you, you should have an understanding of what your capabilities are. So when you do have to wake up in the middle of the night, you're confident and you're comfortable performing the tasks that you need to perform. And I think that that's a big thing that, uh, you know, you learn in the SEAL teams is, you know, they wake you up, you go through hell week where you don't sleep at all. They wake you up in the middle of the night constantly throughout training. <clears throat> and you, you learn how to function under those and you learn how to turn your world from, you know, this giant everything into your small box and operate at the level you need to operate, uh, you know, kind of within your task at hand. So, you know, it's, it's really interesting. I will, uh, I will disclose for our listeners. Sometimes we have a, a topic or a subject or a little bit of a plan for these episodes. This time we, we really didn't, but I, I really like how organically we've all kind of put our focus on the idea of training and, and comparison. Uh, comparing the difficulty of training with the neurosurgery to the process he went through with the SEALs. And so thinking about that, Mason, and also hearing the way you spoke about Dr. Rena so glowingly and so gratefully, um, I'm also someone who I think, obviously, for our listeners, had a, a great mentor and friend that I met in medical school. So maybe, Mason, you'll wind up with a podcast one day out of it, too. But I wonder <laughs> if you could uh, look back to your days in the SEALs, and if you could recall anyone who really stands out to you as a mentor, a teacher that, that guided you through that process and that evolution in your own development that you'd like to name and, and maybe let us know something he taught you, something that uh, you, you have never really forgotten from that period and that person. Yeah. You know what? I was really blessed to have a lot of really, really good mentors. Um, but I think the one that really comes to mind now is uh, this guy named Nate. And um, so when I first showed up to that uh, East Coast-based SEAL team that I was telling you about, 
Um, I finished the selection process and I just met up with them in Libya and I get off the, the aircraft and there's this guy here. I have no idea how old this guy is. He's an Alaskan native. He's essentially ageless. And, you know, he's like, Hey brother, like, you know, let me show you your room. Let me show you around and everything. And I'm like, Oh, this guy's cool. Maybe he's like another newer guy, you know? And he's like kind of showing me the ropes, telling me the op tempo, everything that's going to happen. And, you know, I, I get my room set up and everything. And I talk to a buddy that I knew and I'm like, Hey, like who, who's Nate? And like, Oh, that's the team leader. I'm like the team leader, like, yeah, he has, you know, 26 deployments. The guy was at this, this particular SEAL team prior to 9-11. And, you know, he's one of the like fiercest combat warriors out there. And you, you just would never know. And, um, you know, he, he taught me so much. He taught me how to be, you know, a good family man. Uh, unfortunately, his wife just passed away to pancreatic cancer. And, um, you know, he's just, he was that type of guy. He got up to speak at the memorial and he started thanking people by name for everything that had done for them as they were going through this process. And, you know, he just, he's taught me how to be humble. He taught me that, you know, if you're, you're that guy that has done it all and been there and you have nothing to prove, there's no reason to talk about it. Um, you know, mm -hmm. he taught me that when you're there, you need to be focused on what you're, what you're supposed to be focused on, but at some point you got to set it down and walk away and like spend time with your family. So, you know, he taught me really how to have that switch of turning it on while you're at work and turning it off you know, while you're at home. And that's something that you really, uh, really helped me fight, you know, fatigue and kind of fight burnout in that way. But, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't even, I could spend the rest of the podcast talking about all the incredible, you know, combat things he taught me, but I think the life lessons are even far more important. I think just a funny story, uh, just kind of a shout out to him. Uh, we used to call him hibernate because, you know, we wouldn't operate in low loom windows and, you know, there'd be like a five day period where you'd be like, where, where's Nate? And he would just, he'd sleep. He'd like hibernate through the entire like five day non-op because that's what he did up in Alaska. So um, just, you know, shout out to him. Just an incredible, incredible mentor. So. Yeah. You know, it's interesting as, as you're telling us about this, Mason, one of the things that strikes me as being so similar to neurosurgery training and neurosurgery life is that, um, we pride ourselves on a tremendous amount of individuality. And I'm thinking about how uh, my understanding is that you guys are allowed to wear uh, facial hair and you don't have to comply with all of those particulars of, of uniform dress, dress and, and style, right? That's one of the uh, luxuries or one of the, the, uh, the flexibilities that's afforded to you guys, right? In some way, right? Is that true? I think it's true, right? Uh, yeah, it is true. It is definitely true. Yeah. And, and in the same way that neurosurgeons walk around the hospital, like I used to wear black scrubs into the OR for years and everybody knew me as the black scrub guy. And I would, you know, I didn't wear the hospital scrubs and everybody was okay with it for, for a very long time, actually. And then yet on the other hand, within the team, within our department of neurosurgery, there's a tremendous amount of cohesion, right? So you'd think the two run opposites. One is the fierce individuality of spirit and personality and style and all that. And the other is this absolute conformity to a basic standard uh, where you have your backs to each other, right? That the neurosurgeons, we like to think anyways, that the residency's like that, that we don't like to fire people, right? We don't like to hang people out. Can you comment on how that culture is built? You mentioned a bit with Nate, like he, he led from the front, right? He was with the team, he made you comfortable. How do you see that being developed in its in its most refined form in the in the special operations world? Yeah, it, you know, I think it starts at, at the selection level. Um, you know, 
you're screening people who already have a certain level of discipline and a level of intrinsic motivation where, you know, they don't need haircuts and shaves to keep them disciplined. They don't need to wear the exact same uniform to have team cohesion. And then, um, you know, once you get beyond that, it's just the difficulty that you go through together. Uh, you know, every man, they're individual, everyone super interesting, has their own story, has their own skills, but you know, they, they really, it's, it's more than them, right? Like it's not about them as an individual. It's about their brother. It's about the team. And everyone has a strong understanding about that because it's ingrained from day one, week one that you learn, you know, without the team, you're useless. Like you may be the fastest runner, the smartest dude, but if you don't have your brother there to help you hold the boat up or you don't have your brother there to help, you know, cover your six, like you're, you're essentially useless. And so, um, you know, when the tide goes up in the harbor, all boats rise. And I think that, uh, you know, in the SEAL teams, especially everyone is selected, you know, to be uh, that person. They're already like have proven themselves to have that ability that they don't require, you know, that level of discipline. But, um, you know, they the, the training and the hardships that we go through, I think, really kind of show you that, uh, you know, as one person, you're you're really not worth much. It's uh, it's the team that what really matters. You know, Mason, it's been really inspiring hearing you talk about your time with the SEALs, your role as a, a family man and, and transitioning now back to academia and your medical education and your, your career aspirations. But there, there is another, if, if you can believe it, listeners, there's another facet to you that we haven't really touched on in that you're also a, a Tillman scholar with the Pat Tillman Foundation. So I wonder if you could take a moment just to tell our audience about the foundation, your role with it, uh, what the activities are and, and the goals of, of this great organization that you're a member of. Yeah, no, thanks for bringing that up, JP. Um, especially, you know, we're having this conversation on Memorial Day, which uh, is more than just a long weekend for everybody out there. And, uh, you know, Pat Tillman, he was, you know, such an incredible human. I mean, he had the world at his fingertips, but he realized that, you know, it, it, he chose something bigger than himself, right? He didn't choose himself. He put, you know, America first. He put this idea that there, you know, there's something worth fighting for. There's something out there that's bigger than himself, worth more than himself. And he put everything on the line and um, he was killed in Afghanistan. And so uh, his family and friends set up this foundation and their goal is to help service members transition from the military and then into uh, higher stages of learning. And, uh, and uh, you know, they, you know they, they help support these people who have a history of service and who, you know, have a proven foundation that they're going to give back um, in some type of way. And so they raise money and then they support um, scholars in that way. But they also create this huge network of, of people that you can rely on. I mean, when you leave the military, it's, it's a pretty difficult transition because you've got, you know, essentially – your, your brother's here, your brother's there and, and everyone can kind of relate and then you leave and it's, you know, it's a little hard to relate to people and sometimes it's hard to connect. And so they provide like this whole network of people who have been through the process and now have, you know, started companies or whatever the case may be. And so it's really a truly a great organization and I'm really, uh, really grateful to them. You know, Mason, our, our middle child, uh, Evan, actually goes to school at NYU. Uh, he's in college there. And, um, you know, I've gotten a little bit more acquainted with the city through him. And I'm, I'm hoping he gets to meet you someday because I'm hoping he'll, he'll become a neurosurgeon or a surgeon at least. Um, you know, I've gotten to know a little bit more about NYU. And actually, the brother of my anesthesiologist who does the awake spinal fusions with us, Jay Grossman, his brother is your dean. Um, and I've heard so much because often Jay and I will have lunch and we'll talk about his brother. 
and how much money he's raised for NYU Medical School and how he's created this three-year med program. Uh, and, and the statements about it, we don't have time to get into it, but the idea is that everybody gets free tuition at NYU Medical School now, right? Is that correct? Yeah, um, yeah. And it's a three-year program, which has made it probably, I think it's the most difficult uh, medical school to gain entry to in the country now because of a lot of factors, uh, quality as well, of course. Um, but but tell me what you think about doing three years, because I think a lot of folks listening want to know. We had a, a young uh, student here at UM that said, I could finish in three years. Should I do neurosurgery? And I said, listen, no, no, no. You really need to do four years because neurosurgery requires a higher level of maturity. And I know you've, you've had a, this is your second act. So you're not a 25 year old medical school graduate, right? But tell us about what it's like to go through medical school in three years. Yeah, I think, uh, I, I think you're right. Um, you know, it, it, it's, I think the, it's, the system is built, the program is built for people who kind of this is their second act and they have this uh, level of maturity. And for me, it's, it's been incredible. I mean, uh, you know, they enfolded me into the neurosurgery department like day one, week one. Um, Dr. Harder is the program director here. He met with me immediately. An incredibly, incredibly nice guy and like super humble. And then, uh, you know, I got to meet with Dr. Golfino. So he kind of told me what the expectations were up front. And he, I mean, he's built just such an incredible program. So for me, um, you know, this is I'm probably just tarnishing my reputation over and over. But I, I went to medical school to be a neurosurgeon. Um, so for me, the program was incredible to have access to these incredible surgeons who brought me in as part of their family. And they continue to like incorporate me, you know, as part of their training and everything like that. And so for me, it's been, it's been incredible. I mean, I really feel like it's streamlined into, um, you know, helping you what you want to achieve, but, uh, I don't think it's for everyone. Like you said, I think, and that's the big thing about NYU too. You still have the opportunity to do the four year, uh, program and you can still, uh, do the four years and figure out what you want to do. But it's it's great for people like me who kind of know what they want to do and, and come in for that purpose. Well, Mason, uh, you will have the opportunity to take me up on my offer very soon because John Golfinas will be hosting the Society of University Neurosurgeons meeting uh, in the middle of July. And so we will all be up in New York. Uh, about half the members of Sons are chairs. It's a really great society, so I hope you'll be around this summer, and I'll buy those drinks for you. We'll, we can share some stories. But I do want to thank you uh, for your service and to all the service men and women out there on behalf of the podcast and our listeners and sharing uh, intimate knowledge. Hopefully, we can do another recording with you in person in the future. Yeah, thank, thank you so much for having me on, and hopefully uh, I look forward to meeting you uh, here pretty soon. Thanks so much. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.